Is this mic on? Is this mic on? Would you join me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we praise You this morning because You are in heaven and You do whatever You please. We praise You because You are the awesome, free, unbridled God who does whatever is in Your heart. We thank You that nothing constrains You, nothing restrains You. You are under no obligations. We look at this world that You've made, God, and we recognize that You're under no obligations to create it that there was nothing that forced your hand, that you created this world because it was your good pleasure. And God, we recognize that it is your uh, good pleasure that anything happens. And so we praise you that you are uh, a free and holy and awesome God. And that because you are free, you are God. Lord, we look at our own lives and we confess that we have a sinful definition of freedom. We know, Lord, the true freedom is found in following you, and yet we have sought our liberty in doing what we want. Somehow we've defined freedom as doing whatever we want to do. Lord, we've done what is right in our own eyes. We've thought that we might find freedom in uh, addictions, that we might find freedom in money, that we might find freedom in illicit relationships, God. We thought we might find freedom in all of these sinful ways. And yet, Lord, we found that the more we sought our own freedom apart from You, the more we are enslaved to sin. But we thank You, Jesus, that in Your free mercy, You came to give Your life for us. That by dying on that cross, You came to save us from our sins and to reconcile us to God. Jesus, we know that You didn't have to come. That if You had chosen God to leave the world in darkness and to let the world go on its way to destruction, You would have been completely justified. And so, Lord, we praise You this morning that You have reached out freely of Your own good pleasure to save us. And so, Lord, we are Your people because of what You've done in our lives. We praise You this morning. We want to be a more obedient people. Lord, we pray now for Your church, for Your kingdom, for Your glory. We pray, God, for our missionaries around the world who this day are laboring in other parts of the world, bringing the Gospel, sometimes to people who have never heard it before. Lord, we pray especially for our missionaries of the week, the nobles, that You would bless them uh, there in Canada and their ministry. Father, we pray for nations around the world that the Gospel might go to every nation. We pray for Pakistan. We pray, Lord, for the Congo. We ask You, God, for Poland. We pray, Lord, for Russia. We ask, Lord, that the Gospel would be preached to all nations and all continents. Bless those missionaries and organizations who are there doing that. Lord, I do pray for our nation. pray for those in leadership that You would give them wisdom and guidance so we might be able to live in peace so that we might have opportunities to proclaim the Gospel in peace in our nation. Lord, thank You on this Memorial Day for those who have given their lives for our freedom. Lord Jesus, You said that no greater love has a man than this, than that He lays down His life for His friends. And Lord, as we think of those who have selflessly given up their very lives for the freedoms we enjoy in this country, we see in their heroic sacrifice a reflection of the sacrifice of Christ. And so Lord, thank You for them. God, we pray for our church that we would be a humble church that is willing to serve. We know, Lord, that there is no freedom except when we are bound to You as slaves of Christ. And so we pray that we might be servants to one another, that we might see our true joy and purpose 
in yielding our lives to others in this church. Let this be a church where there is mutual love and service taking place at all different levels. God, help us to care about each other deeply as a congregation. Fill us with love for one another. God, we pray for those who in our church are struggling with different um, predicaments in their lives, different trials. God, we pray for Karen Lyons that you would strengthen her as she undergoes chemotherapy. Lord, thank you that Colin Wolf is here and we pray that you would continue to heal his leg and give him full mobility soon and keep your hand upon his life. Thank you for your blessings on him. Thank you, Lord, for uh, others here who I don't know maybe are going through some trial. They brought it in with them this morning and, and they are uh, burdened with it heavily. Lord, we thank you that your burden is light. And I pray that they would take your, their burden, your burden upon them, that they would trust you. God, we thank you now for your word. We thank you for the Bible, that it is the word of God, that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that as we open it now, we might feel the light shining on us that uh, questions we have might be resolved, that uh, struggles we have might find resolution, that hurts in our lives might find healing just by hearing your word, that your word might have that uh, amazing transforming effect upon us. We know, Lord, it was by your word that you created the world. It was by your word that you created the people of Israel. We know, Lord, it was by your word that you spoke through Jesus, who is the word of God. And so it's through your word, God, that you bring life. So bring life to your church today. I pray this now as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we invite any kids here? Kindergarten to second grade? Any kids who want to go to children's church? You're free to do so. You can find that through the door over here by the piano. But the rest of you, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're studying verses 21 to 24. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1028. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 to 24 on page 1028. Let me just read the passage, then we'll talk about it. Verse 21 says... At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was Your good pleasure. All things have been committed to Me by My Father. No one knows who the Father is, Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Well, I was thinking maybe we should rename this month the month of difficult doctrines. Now, last Sunday we looked at the doctrine of uh, hell, eternal damnation little light uh, summer reading for you. And then this Sunday, we look at Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 10, and here we are at the, the topic of God's sovereignty in our salvation. The sovereignty of God and the salvation of people. In other words, uh, God is the one who ultimately decides whom He will save or won't save. 
that God is sovereign. He has the free choice in that matter. Uh, are we called to believe in Christ? Are we called to commit our lives to Christ? Yes. But we also recognize that I can only commit to Christ if He first chooses me. Uh, are we called to proclaim the Gospel to every creature in the world and tell everyone to believe in Jesus? Yes, that's the work of missions. It's the work of the church. And yet we do that recognizing that although everyone may hear the Gospel with their physical ears, we cannot hear the Gospel with our, I guess you call it, spiritual ears unless God chooses to reveal Himself to us. Uh, so this is a very difficult topic. I mean, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend that I understand this completely. I remember when I was in seminary, this was the theological conundrum more than any others that sent people into a tailspin. And I remember one class I was in in particular, uh, the conversation kept coming back to this issue. And the class wasn't about this issue. And I think the professor got frustrated because he couldn't finish his lectures. Because everyone wanted to wrestle through this. So he said, that's it. He said, we're having a free will, sovereignty of God night at my house. And so anyone who wanted to went to his house. We brought our Bibles. You could open up to any passage you wanted to and just argue. It was wonderful. We just argued and debated and wrestled through this. You know, I guess that's what seminary is for. Um, you know, it's a tough issue. I, it's an issue that's divided Christians. You know, during the Great Awakening in the 18th century, which was one of the greatest revivals in the history of the church, the two leaders of the revival, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley, divided for a time over their understanding of this challenging theological topic. And so it's you know, one of those topics that we just don't talk about. We try to not go there because it is so hard. It's so complex. It, it, it just shakes our understanding of God one way or the other. Um, you know, it's kind of like bringing up politics at a soiree. You just don't do that. You don't bring up controversial kinds of things. And I think our reticence to wrestle with it is buttressed by the spirit of our age. You know, the spirit of our age is one where experience and emotion and feeling are emphasized and thought is marginalized and put down. And so, of course, we're not going to want to look at something that has a lot to do with thinking before we can get to the feeling part that is part of this. Um, maybe even as I'm talking about this, you're like, oh dear, why am I here? I wonder if I can slip out unnoticed. Unfortunately, you can't. Um, I've instructed the ushers not to let anyone leave, so you're going to have to be here for a little bit. Just kidding. So, we wrestle with this. And yet, isn't it interesting that here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had the exact opposite reaction to this doctrine. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus had a radically different response to the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. Whereas we have a headache about it, it led him to issue forth in hallelujahs. We're paranoid, but it led him to praise God. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, I mean, that's like, you know, I guess as happy as you can be to be full, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit. So it's like a supernaturally empowered super state of joy. So Jesus is just ecstatic with joy. And what is he joyful about? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So as Jesus thinks about the fact that God chooses to hide himself from some and reveal himself to others, it leads Jesus to intense joy in worship. Which, 
I'm trying to figure out how to get there. So that's my goal this morning in this morning's message, is for us to try to get from where we are to where Jesus is. To understand how it could be that this is a truth that would make us happy the way it made Jesus happy. Why this truth should lead us to worship and not worrying and frustration. So let's dig in. What I want to do first is just look at what Jesus is saying. Just kind of put the doctrine in front of us. Put the teaching of Jesus in front of us. Verse 21. At that time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, just stop there. Just that title, Lord of heaven and earth. That's who God is. He's the Lord. And that's, you know, stop and let that sink in. The Lord means, well, that He's in charge. You know, heaven is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. And there's God, and God is the Lord. He's the Lord over everything. He's the Lord over heaven. All the angels in heaven are obedient to Him. He's Lord over the earth. The, you know, the, the wind obeys Him. The birds obey Him. Everything is underneath His power. He's in total authority over the universe. He's the Lord. And so that's where we have to start, is understanding who God is, generally speaking. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And that includes His Lordship over everything. And you know, this is very challenging. Um, it just kind of runs counter to my individualistic impulse to think that I am the center of things and to think that God is the center of things is so different. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, again, I, I was wrestling through this issue and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a pastor and he you know, sort of found out I was trying to sort this thing out and he kind of laughed at me, sort of like, oh, I remember when I was wrestling with that. I was like, great, thanks. He, he said, you know, Jeremy, I had to finally come to one issue and he said the issue was this. Is God God or not? Like, okay. <laughs> you know, if He's God and He's Lord, then, then that's who He is. And even though I can't always understand it or make sense of it, if He's God, He's God. And so that's the first thing that we see here, just that He's Lord of heaven and earth. And then notice the second thing, that God does in fact choose to hide Himself from some and reveal Himself to others. Look at the next phrase. I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So God does, in fact, choose some and, and not others to come to know Christ. Uh, so, you know, some people say, well, God has the power to, but he chooses not to do that. God wouldn't do that. I mean, he may, but he restrains himself. So when it comes to salvation, God just takes himself out of the equation and says, really, it's up to your free will. That's the center of it all. And yet, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't just saying that God could do it. He's praising God that He actually does that. So, all of us are in the dark. We are all lost. We are separated from God because of our sins. And God chooses to leave some in the dark and for others to turn on the light bulb. So, that's what Christ is saying. So, what makes the difference? Why is it that God chooses some and not the others? Well, that's the next sentence. He says, um, Yes, Father, for this was your... Good pleasure. So what is it that motivates God's choosing? It's His good pleasure. In other words, He does what He wants to do because He's God and so it arises from His own being. In other words, to put it negatively, God is not constrained. God is not restrained. He's not obligated. There's no external obligation that God has to fit Himself to to 
to follow someone else's rules. His choices are just coming out of what is in his own wisdom and pleasure. They're coming from within him, not from outside of him. Uh, God does not put this up to a vote. He doesn't focus group this kind of stuff. He just does what is good pleasure. He's the sovereign Lord, even over our salvation. And then verse 22, just to finish the teaching that Christ gives us, He says, All things have been committed to Me by My Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So I think the last thing there is just that we can't know God unless He does, in fact, show Himself to us. There's some kind of gulf, there's some curtain between us and God, and unless God crosses the gulf, unless God pulls aside the curtain, it's not like we're ever going to be able to figure Him out. We are, he's hidden from us. Now, why is that? Well, I mean, one reason is He's the Creator and we're the creation. That's one reason. Uh, it's, it's like the painter and the painting. They're separate. They're distinct things. Uh, there's the computer programmer and then there's the software that he writes. They're, they're distinct things. And so the only way for the creation to know who God is is if the Creator breaks into the system, the created system, which from the creation's perspective is a closed system. And if the Creator breaks in and says, here's who I am, then the creation can say, oh, there's, that's who you are. But it's not just that He's the Creator and we're the creation. There's another issue, and that is that we are a rebellious creation. We are a sinful creation. So it's like a whole extra layer of darkness. There's the darkness just from our limitedness as humans. Then there's the darkness of our sin. So that God does speak into the creation. I mean, look, you know, if you want to know if there's a God, let me just ask you a question. Did you go outside yesterday? <laughs> what a day! You look at that day and you really think there's no God? You, you can't just see the beauty of the creation, the order of it, the complexity of it, the, the aesthetic pleasure that it gives all of us? It's not just a day. It's a beautiful day. Those are moral, uh, aesthetic categories. God is, is speaking to us. You can almost you know, just breathe how good God is by smelling that fresh spring air. And yet we are so hardened in our sinfulness that we go most of the day and don't think about God even though he's like screaming, here I am, I'm good, and yet we ignore him. I ignore him. I just go about my day doing my thing because I'm so hardened. And so it, I need God to break through in order for me to know that he's there. So this is what Christ teaches. I know some of you are thinking, oh, Jeremy, you're throwing this Calvinism at us. Ah, no, this isn't Calvinism. This is Jesusism. And you know, maybe Calvin sounded like Jesus. Maybe that's because he studied Jesus. I don't know. This is what Jesus says. That God is the Lord. He chooses whom He will. It's based upon His own good pleasure. And we need God to break through to us. Otherwise, we'll never respond to Him. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? I just, it's hard to get your mind around that. I struggle with this. I've, sometimes it makes more sense to me than others. Uh, and you know, there's certain kind of responses that we come up with. And uh, you know, one of them is, just doesn't seem fair. Seems kind of arbitrary. I mean, why some and not others? It just is God unfair. But you know, what does it mean to be fair? I think that's a good question. What, what is fair? How do you define fair? Uh, I, I think fair implies that somebody has an obligation in a sort of a, a right that you have to honor. It's sort of like you know, I have kids, and if I were to just favor one child, <clears throat> if I were to just shower one child day after day with candy and 
you know, Slurpees from 7-Eleven and culottes from Dunkin' Donuts. And what do you want? I'll get it for you. You want gum in the checkout line? You want all the candy you want? I just keep giving it to them. I give them toys. And the other kids are going, huh? That's not fair. (laughs) Something I hear from one of my kids all the time. It's not fair. And, you know, they'd be right. Because as a parent, I do have an obligation to treat my children fairly and and equitably. They, They have that sort of... Uh, right that I have to honor to some degree because, you know, they're my children. But when it comes to sinners before a holy God, what rights do we claim? <laughs> what right does the death row inmate have on the governor's clemency? Zero. We have no rights. There's nothing that God is obligated to do to us. In fact, if God were to be completely fair, if God were to say, fine, fair is fair, He would just take all of us and broom us all into hell. Because that's what we deserve. So, yeah, it's not fair that God saves some. It's better than fair. It's grace. It's mercy. It's amazing. You know, the angels in heaven are not scratching their heads about why some people are lost forever. They're scratching their heads. Why are any of these people going to be in heaven? And it's amazing that God in His mercy would make a plan of redemption to save some of us. But you know, there's other issues too, other theological issues that come up as a result of this. You know, another one is that it seems to diminish uh, human responsibility and human agency. It makes it seem like human beings are just kind of puppets, that they're nothing. You you know, if if God is the one who chooses, then really, what does that make my choice? It just seems like it's kind of fake. I mean, where's the issue of responsibility? And yet, look, in the very same passage, Luke chapter 10, the same passage where Jesus explains the sovereignty of God and salvation, he also boldly puts forth the reality of human responsibility. Look at verse uh, 10. Jesus said to the 72 disciples who are going out to preach the gospel, he says, but when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So apparently there is moral responsibility. Apparently we do have choices, and those choices matter, and they have consequences. So you have God's sovereignty right next to human responsibility, just kind of, bloop, sitting next to each other in the same text. How do they fit together? You know, there's another way, another question that comes up. Another question is, well, if it's God ultimately who chooses who He wills, why proclaim the gospel to people? Isn't it seem kind of phony to go out there and tell everyone you can, hey, everyone, you need to come to Christ, knowing that God will not ultimately respond to everyone? It seems like those can't fit together. And yet, here in the very text where Jesus is articulating the sovereignty of God and salvation is the same text where He sent out 72 disciples to preach the gospel to everyone. So there again, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility sit fully affirmed in the same text. And the question we want to know is, how does it fit? How does it mesh? And I have a three-word answer for you. I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I don't know. It's a mystery. It is a mystery. There are some things that God simply has not shown us. I I don't know how it works together. I can show you text after text after text 
from Genesis all the way to Revelation, where the responsibility of human beings to turn to Christ and the reality of that sits right next to the sovereignty of God over all things, and yet they're never intertwined. They always just sit there. And so it's a mystery. And by mystery, I don't mean something that's not rational. I just mean something that's not revealed, something that God hasn't shown us how it all fits together. Uh, maybe you've heard this old illustration. It's a great one. It's you know this idea of a, of a pulley in a ceiling with a rope hanging over it. It's a drop ceiling. And so the pulley's up above the drop ceiling and the rope comes down either side. And then there's two little holes in the drop ceiling and the ropes come down. So if you're standing on the ground looking up, all you see coming out of the ceiling are two strings, two ropes. And you don't know how they're connected. You don't know what's going on. But you know that in order to hang from the rope, you have to grab both at the same time. And you don't, if you hold on to one, it kind of moves. You hold on to the other. I mean, we'd obviously be able to figure out the pulley, but you, you get the idea of the illustration. There's something hidden up there that we can't see. We don't see how it works. All I know is that you have to hold on to both of them at the same time for it to work. And, and so there's things like this in the Bible where we have to hold on to both truths. I mean, the Trinity. How does that work? I don't know. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, but there's one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. How does that go together? We're not told. Uh, Jesus is a great paradox, apparently. He's fully God and yet fully human. How can you be that? I don't know. Uh, how can you know, an electron have characteristics of a particle and a wave? How can it be like matter but also like energy? I don't know. You know, God has even put paradoxes within the created order that we don't fully understand yet. Uh, and so there are these things that are there and we don't exactly know how they work. And yet we come to accept them by faith. Not because they're irrational, but because they're unrevealed mysteries. <clears throat> and so ultimately when you get into this issue, you're going to come to a place of mystery. Whenever you come into these kind of theological uh, difficulties, you're eventually going to hit the, what I call the wall of mystery. Just keep going far enough, you'll hit it. Boop, there it is. The wall of mystery. You can't get beyond. And so we try to understand it as best we can, but ultimately, there's some things that are beyond us. So, let's get back to the main point then. So why should this be a cause of rejoicing? Because that was the main point. This doctrine, this truth about how God works, should lead us to worship Him and be full of praise and be full of joy. It should make us happy. It should make us like Jesus who was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus loved this. He was excited. So what is it about this doctrine that should make us full of joy? And there are probably a couple things we could say, but the one that I think is highlighted in this text that I just want to focus on this morning is that I believe this doctrine exalts God and humbles people. This doctrine makes much of the greatness and glory and power of God. It, it makes God bigger and bigger in our eyes. And it also tends to humble sinful human pride. And so it, it puts God in proper perspective and it puts us in proper perspective. And when we see things as they are and we see how great and awesome God is and human pride is humbled, we, we worship God because it leads to the worship of who He truly is. Um, you know, even this fact that I can't fully understand it. Don't you see that that is severing the very root of human pride? 
The fact that I can't put it all together, perhaps God has intentionally hidden things from my understanding so that I can't sort of strut around in my rationalism. It just severs the root of rationalism. Not rationality. I'm not ever arguing that we should be irrational as Christians. I believe faith and reason go together just fine. It's rationalism that's the problem. You know, rationalism is the idea that my mind is the center of my knowing, and if you can't prove it to me rationally and logically and scientifically, therefore it can't be true. (laughs) What kind of arrogance is that? That's basically self-deification, is what that is. That's worshipping yourself, that's making your mind into a god, and saying that my mind is the center of everything. I mean, we should use our minds, but let's also recognize the limits of that. And I think that doctrines like this that have ultimately... um, evade our total comprehension, sever the root of it. And I must say, I worship a God I fully cannot understand. And if I could fully understand Him, would He be God? There's the question. But not only that, look at this text. Look at verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, said, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because, here we go, You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So in other words, Jesus is praising God because in His choosing, He is sort of undercutting things that people could be proud about. He's hiding them from the wise and learned. Now what does He mean by that? Well, I think He's speaking um, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. You know, the wise and the learned. In other words, people who think they know it all. The religious elite like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The people who are well-educated and successful and prosperous and they're the beautiful people and, you know, they don't need God. They're so smart and so together that they really don't need Jesus or God. You know, those people, God hides it from because they might have reason to boast. But instead, to whom did Jesus, for the most part, reveal Himself to? It was to the people who were like little children. And by little children, I take that to mean not just literally little kids, but people who understood that they were humble and small. Uh, The little children are people in society who had no rights. They had nothing to brag about before God. They had nothing to boast in. And isn't that where Jesus spent the majority of His time? With the lepers and the women of ill repute and the tax collectors and the sinners. That's where Christ spent His time. With the people who would never begin to actually think that maybe it was based on them that they were being saved. The little children. And so... I think that even in the way Christ reveals Himself, it's undercutting human pride and human self-righteousness. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine twin boys born to a Christian family. Both of the boys are raised with saying prayers around the table. Both boys are taught the Bible growing up. Both boys um, are hearing the truth taught in the same Sunday school classes by the same Sunday school teachers. They go to the same church programs. Their parents treat them equally. The parents pray fervently for both of them. And as they grow up, one child puts his faith in Christ. The other son does not. Then someday they stand before God. The judgment day comes. One child is saved. One child is lost. And as they stand before God, what is the the determinative factor? What is the hinge upon which the difference has been made between child A who believed and child B who didn't? If it is human free will, if that's the the very heart of the matter, then child A can say to child B, well, at least I have the good sense to listen to mom and dad. 
At least I wasn't stupid like you to squander our family heritage. You know, I at least listened to that Sunday school class. So, you know. And now man is at the center. And there's human boasting. But I don't think anyone's going to be saying that on the judgment day. I don't think anybody at all, no matter what their theology is. I think when we stand before God, and if we're found in Christ, we're going to be on our knees just astounded at our salvation. Oh, why would you save me, God? When I look at my life and I see now clearly the ways in which I've failed, to think that you're saving me by the blood of Christ. You are an awesome, awesome God of mercy. And I think on the judgment day, we're going to be humbled at how great God is, not at how great we are, or that at least we figured it out and used our free will while some other guy failed. I mean, don't you even know from your own experience, those of you who are truly saved and truly born again, don't, don't you know just from the way you came to Christ? Surely it wasn't that you just sort of figured it out on your own because you were so smart. Think back. You know that God was working in your life. You know that He was orchestrating events. You know that He sent certain people and certain coincidences in your life. You know that something was happening in your heart. God was all around you and He was working on you and you were fighting against Him and eventually you lost. We always lose when God fights against us. And eventually you came to Christ. Did you decide at that point to receive Christ? Yes. But you were riding on a surge of God's grace. It was God's working in you that enabled you to be able to receive Him. You know it's true. You know it's true. I'm sure you wouldn't deny that. Even if you're one of those people who was like raised in a Christian household and you're like, you know, I never knew a time when I didn't really believe in Jesus. Well, yeah, see, you were raised in a Christian household. God had surrounded you with the message of grace, even from infancy, so that you can't even remember. It's not like you're, you know, a little five-year-old atheist, you know, who... I'm going to consider arguments for the existence of God and arguments contrary to the existence of God and, you know, figured it out. No, God was working in your life. So from beginning to end, it's the grace of God. Human responsibility is real. We must turn to Christ. But ultimately, God is the decisive factor. And He gets the glory. And we receive the joy. And I want to tell you, that's the other thing that this doctrine should do for us. Not only should it make us uh, rejoice, I think the other thing it should do is it should give us Assurance. Confidence. So that as we go through the trials of life which inevitably come even to the most holy people, that we know that we are in the hand of God. That it wasn't me who was smart enough to figure out to believe in Jesus and therefore my salvation is based on me and uh uh-oh, what if I stop believing or stop being good enough that maybe I might fall back out. (laughs) No, no, no. I recognize that it was God who was scooping me up And therefore, it's God who has me in His hand. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we're in His hand. And so there's this great confidence and assurance that I think this truth gives to Christians. That it's God who has me. And yeah, I turn to Christ, but He was working in me. And so I am confident in my salvation, even in the midst of trials even in the midst of the worst things that could befall a human being. Have you ever been to an airport? Can't you tell the difference between ticketed passengers and standby passengers? You pick them out. (laughs) You walk in the airport, ticketed passengers are sitting there, latte, 
You know, they're looking out the window, they're reading a book. They got a ticket, they got a seat. They know it. And then there's standby passengers. Their arms are folded, they're up, they're up at the desk, they're eyeballing the other people who are cutting in line. You know, they're real, they're just on the edge, they gotta get on the flight, they gotta make sure they get there. You know, that's the difference between when this doctrine really sinks into our hearts. When it sinks in deep, you see that you're a ticketed passenger. And there's a peace that comes with knowing of God's sovereign hand in your life. Um, and that's what I pray is that you would experience that peace. But maybe some of you are saying, well, you know, Pastor, that's great for some people, but I feel like a standby person. And frankly, all your sermon has done is made it worse. Because, you know, I was thinking about Christianity and I've been toying with it and thinking about believing in Christ, but now I'm like, what's the point? Because, you know, maybe I'm not chosen, so who cares? It's all for naught. You know, so, well, forget it. <laughs> you didn't help. Uh, now it's, I, I even feel more insecure than ever. And if that's where you're at, I guess I would just say to you, I can't find one command anywhere in the Bible where God commands people to first figure out His mysterious plan for them before they come to Christ. The only pl- command I find in the Bible for sinners is repent and believe in Jesus. So, you know, don't overthink this. <laughs> It's really very simple. Come to Christ. Yeah, but what if I'm not chosen? What if He's not going to reveal Himself to me? Yeah, but didn't you say that you're already, you know, before this sermon, you're kind of leaning that way? You're feeling God's call? You're kind of, you know, wanting to know more about Christ? Maybe that was God already revealing Himself to you. So, you know, just go with it. And come to Christ. Don't overthink it. Don't make it more complex. It's just like... uh, John Calvin said. You knew I had to quote him at some point. Um, John Calvin said that before you come to Jesus, there's this doorway, and it's the doorway to the kingdom of God, and there's something written over the doorway. It says, whoever wills may enter. So anybody. Anyone can go through the doorway into the kingdom of God. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is. You may be a criminal. Without a, you know, done time, uh, you may have been in, you know, rehab clinics. Maybe you're a criminal who's just never been caught. I don't know. Maybe you're a person who's just a, a blasphemer. Maybe you're so far from God. Maybe last night you're out partying, and here today you're in church, and you know, <laughs> you know whatever. Who will, I don't care who you are. Whoever wills may enter. Anybody at this very moment may come to Christ and go through that door. So go. But then when we walk through the door and we come to Christ, we turn around and we look at the doorway from the inside. And over the inside, something's written too. It says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And so I say to you who are on the outside, come on in. It's great. Come to Christ. And to those of you who are on the inside, rejoice, rest assured that God is greater than you can ever imagine that He's at work in your life. So rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we humble ourselves before You. We abase ourselves before You because You are an awesome Holy, majestic God, worthy of all worship. 
You are a God who far exceeds the limits of our puny minds. You are a breathtakingly worthy God, worthy of all our worship. And to think that You have saved us when You had no obligation to. That You've reached down and rescued us. Oh God, we praise You. And I pray for every true believer here that through the teaching of Jesus in this text, that they would have a deeper experience of assurance and confidence. That this morning they would feel Your embrace. That they might have that kiss of blessing upon their forehead that only sons and daughters of the King may receive. May they have a fresh encounter with Your assuring love this morning, God. Especially those who are going through deep trials, I pray that You would comfort them in the midst of their afflictions. To let them know that they are not out of Your hand that these trials are not coming because of punishment or judgment, but that You are with them in the midst of it. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is one of those standby people or feels that way, God, that they would just boldly run through the door and throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus and find a Savior there. Lord Jesus, would You show them in their own minds, Yourself, standing with arms outstretched, with nail-pierced hands extended, ready to embrace them so that they might come to Christ even now at this very moment. And so, Lord, be with us now, especially as we enter into the communion table. I pray that you'd be with us, that you'd speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come now to the celebration of communion, this is a sacred uh, table. This is a celebration of the death of Christ for our sins, the ultimate evidence that God is a God of love, that He would send His own Son to die for us. Um, the bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. The cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus. And I asked one of our elders, Jerry Bennett, to come and uh, lead in the communion service. If you'd come, Jerry. Uh, you know, the Bible, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's really no d- difference between pastors and elders. The two terms are synonymous. So Jerry's one of our elders, and I'm a pastor of the church. But, you know, biblically speaking, we have about 13 pastors in our church. It's all the elders plus... Seth and me and Rich. So uh, Jerry's one of our pastors and he's going to lead us at the Lord's table this morning. Thank you, Jeremy. As I thought about um, leading this um, ceremony this morning, I was kind of in awe since Christ was the one who led this first ceremony with his disciples. And to be in the position of Christ is kind of humbling, to put it mildly. But one thing, when we talk about this, we talk about the Lord's Supper. Uh, We don't talk about the Savior's Supper. Christ is our Savior, but he is also Lord. And in the sermon this morning, you you remember Christ referred to God the Father as the, um, the, the leader of the universe, heaven and earth. Father, you are the leader of heaven and earth. So you are the Lord of the heaven and the earth. And yet Christ was Lord in a different way, in the same way, but a different way. Um, Christ was the creator. He created the universe. He created all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Um, he, sustain, he keeps this going. He is the goal of all things. Everything was made for him. Um, so he really is Lord. And um, two things I left out, which I shouldn't have, is he is a redeemer of all things, and he also is the judge of all things. So Christ is not only Savior. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to underplay that. It's the, a critical thing in what he did for us. But he is also Lord. And I just want you to think, when we go through the communion service today, in this celebration with him, 
think about who he is and what he's done for us. Um, If you are a believer today, you have given your life to Christ and you depend on him, you put your faith only in him for salvation, you are a believer. You are one of his family. And if you are in that position, you should have, first of all, great sorrow because of the suffering he went through for you and me. You should also have great joy because he's provided us a life living with God forever if we accept it. Also, it has to have deep thanksgiving for what he's done for us and also have a tremendous love for Christ. I mean, you heard Jeremy's sermon today. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal what he's done for us. So let me read a, a section of scripture in Matthew. Um, then he took the cup. Let me go back one verse. <laughs> While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in a sense, each one of us should realize that Christ died because of my sin. He died on the cross because of my sin. And if you accept that and really believe that and have faith in what he's done for us, then you really are a believer and should participate in this. If you're not, if you haven't really given your life to him and put your full faith in him as the only way to salvation, please just observe and don't participate this morning because this really is saying something to God which you have done. It's kind of celebrating what he's done for you and thanking him for that. Okay, let me, need, let me read another passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Could the elders please come forward? Gentlemen, Nelson, could you uh, pray and thank God for the broken body? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just look at this supper that you've prepared for us. And you had your son, you in human form, prepare this for his disciples. And Lord, we just thank you for his word and what it means to us to partake of this remembrance of your body. While the elders are distributing the bread, I would just request that you contemplate who Christ is and what he's done for you. And in prayer, just think seriously about how important this is and what he's done. And the fact that we are celebrating this supper because he actually instituted it back with his disciples.
Christ's body was broken up for us. Let us eat together. Continuing on, continuing on in the same passage. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Can you help us now? Before you go, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your shed blood, for the suffering you went through for us. Lord, we thank you so much for loving us so deeply that you died for my sin and for our sin. Lord, help us to think on this today. In Jesus' name, amen.